does it mean to be a good Samaritan? And most importantly, are Christians known for actually being good Samaritans? There was a study done a number of years ago involving 40 participants, all who were preparing to be pastors, and they had this, this study take place in two separate buildings. One building where they were interviewed, and they were asked a variety of questions about their background, and their life, and their education, and their family, and why they were pursuing the ministry. And then they had them move to a second building, uh, walk down the road a little ways to a second building where they were supposed to give a little talk, Bible lesson, short sermon, something like that. And so all the participants, these 40 people preparing to be pastors, were focused on what was happening in these two buildings. But the researchers were focused on what happened between the two buildings. And staged there between these two different processes in the research was an actor who at that moment, as the people were passing between these two buildings, would fall to the ground and be in obvious need. And they just sat back to watch to see what they would do. And before I tell you what the research found, how do you think that you would do in that situation? How do you think you would do if you were being watched to see if you would respond to a person in need? We're in the last week of our series here called Pizza and Wings, A Taste of the Familiar. And as a lifelong Western New Yorker, I have favorite pizzerias in Niagara Falls and in Buffalo, in the North Towns, in the South Towns, in pretty much every community. And Pizza and Wings has been a staple at birthday parties, date nights, family Friday night, movie nights. I'm pretty sure I've even been to a wedding where they had pizza and wings. If you have pizza and wings at your wedding, I will come. I guarantee that. And it's, there's just something familiar and it's a staple in what we do. So as we were looking ahead to this summer and, and all the strange things we've been going through as a nation, uh, we said there's, we were watching the trend of people going back to movies and stories and places that are familiar, re-watching movies that you've watched before and rereading books that you've read before and going back to that, that stable familiarity. And we said if there's some passages in the Bible that are like that, that are so familiar that we all know, it's Psalm 23, it's the Lord's Prayer, it's John 3.16, it's the, par the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in addition to thinking that those are familiar and there's some safety and some comfort in looking back at familiar movies and familiar stories, we also knew that something about these passages is that they're timeless. They transcend culture and place and situation. And no matter what would happen this summer, it's always relevant to talk about the Good Samaritan. It's always relevant to talk about Psalm 23. It's always good to hear about, uh, about the Lord's Prayer. And so as we were looking ahead to the summer, not knowing what was going to be happening, we said these are, these are tr tried and tested passages that we can always look to. And so this, this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. You know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. When there's a story on the news and they say that there was a Good Samaritan on Delaware Avenue, you know that that means there was somebody in need and somebody came along and looked after them. But in that study where they started out in one building and moved to the second one, they found that less than half of the participants actually stopped to offer help. In fact, some of the people who were there preparing to, to be pastors and were actually on their way to give a talk about the Good Samaritan literally stepped over a person in need on their way. And so this morning, as we talk about this parable, you know what it means to be the Good Samaritan. We know that part. I want to talk about what, is, what are the things that prevent us from actually being a Good Samaritan? What are the things that seem to keep us from seeing the people in need around us? And what are the things that cause people who should know better to actually step over a person in need? And again, it's great to be joining the pastoral staff here. I actually officially start August 10th and looking forward to that, but it's ministry. So you always kind of, the lines are blurred, but looking forward to officially starting in August and uh, to be fully a part of the Watermark family. We're in the process of, 
of uh, house hunting up here and making the move and really looking forward to being back in the South Downs where we previously spent eight years. The first 12 years of our marriage uh, happened in, our, in Erie County. And so we're looking forward to coming back home to Erie County. But this morning, let's look at chap- Luke chapter 10. And here are these familiar words of Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And before we jump into the parable, I want to just give some background here. Three points of background to help to establish some foundational pieces for this parable. And the first thing is that the Good Samaritan is a story within a story. Uh, the, the Good Samaritan, this, the parable itself can stand on its own two feet. It's timeless. It's powerful that if you just pull that parable out, it's, it stands the test of time. But it happens within another story. It's kind of like The Princess Bride in that way, that, that my, one of my favorite movies where the, the, the princess bride is a story within a story. There's the grandfather reading the story to his grandson. The grandson doesn't want anything to do with the story, but gradually as the story goes on, he's on the edge of his seat and can't wait to hear how the story's going to end. And then he's reading the story about Buttercup and Wesley and Inigo Montoya and the Six-Fingered Man and all that. And that's sort of what's happening here with the parable of the Good Samaritan. In place of the grandfather and the grandson is Jesus and the expert in the law. And Kate, in the place of Wesley and Buttercup and Inigo Montoya is the priest, the Levite, the Good Samaritan, and the victim on the side of the road. And so we can, we can understand the parable on its own without knowing the full context, without knowing the story that it's happening within. But there's some extra layers of meaning we can pull out by understanding the full context of the story. And the second thing here is, Yes, the parable is a story within a story. The Good Samaritan, secondly, is a, is a parable about the greatest commandment. This whole exchange begins with this expert in the law coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts it back on him. Well, what do you think? And he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, in another place, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives the, the very same answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. So they're in agreement. Not every first century rabbi would have summed up the Old Testament in quite that way, but Jesus was there when it was written, so I trust his take on it. And so right now, the expert in the law and Jesus, they're high five. They're on the same page. They both get a gold star. But that's when the trouble starts. The third thing here is that the, the Good Samaritan is a story for a man who's keeping score. This expert in the law didn't come to Jesus to to learn. He didn't come to check out Jesus to see if maybe Jesus could be his rabbi. He didn't come to learn to take advantage of Jesus' insight. He came to try to trip up Jesus. He thought he could outsmart Jesus. He came to dunk on Jesus. And so he's looking for a way to trip Jesus up. And all of his questions are targeted at trying to to trigger Jesus, to trip up Jesus, to trick Jesus into saying something that could get him accused and, and thrown out. And he, they're in agreement after the first question, and then he says, but who's my neighbor? And what you see there happening is a little bit, you know, there are some teachers and professors that you know you can get off topic, right? You know who these teachers and professors are. I know that when I'm in the classroom, I'm, it's really easy to get me off topic. It doesn't take much, and people who have been in the classroom with me know what those topics are. There are some of those teachers and professors that when you have them in the, cl- in the classroom, if you get them on one of their tangents, before you know it, the bell rings, class is over, and they never, they never gave you the quiz. And that's sort of what the expert in the law is doing here. But who's my neighbor anyway? 
And Jesus could light this guy up like the 4th of July. Jesus could tie this guy up in knots that he'd never be able to untie himself. But he's so kind and he's so generous. And instead of giving it back to this guy, instead of lighting him up, he says, let me tell you a story. And so now we launch into these so familiar words. Verse 30. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about this very passage the night before he was assassinated. And he said that he and his wife had been on this Jericho Road. They had rented a car and they had driven down the Jericho Road. And he said that as they were driving along, he said to Mrs. King, I can see why Jesus made this the backdrop for a story. Uh, this is a winding road. It's a meandering road. There's a lot of places where it'd be really easy to be ambushed. And he said, you see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. There are two things I want to point out that I think Jesus lays out here in this passage that help us to see what, uh, why, what the, some of the barriers that keep us from actually being neighbors when we know that we should be a neighbor, to, that prevent us from being a good Samaritan when we know we should be a good Samaritan. And the first is that being a neighbor is a dangerous road. As Dr. King said, you see, the, danger, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. So being a neighbor means taking a dangerous road. Love is always a risk. Love is always a risk. To love is always to make yourself vulnerable. It is always exposing yourself to a certain amount of risk. And so there are situations that you might find yourself in where you have to count the cost and think, is this a safe place for, for me to be? Is this a safe place for me to take my family? Is this the right thing to do? Because there's always some vulnerability. But you can never totally eliminate the cost. Love is always a risk. Love is always a dangerous road. It is always a risky thing to go down whichever Jericho road we find ourselves on. And Dr. King that night before he was assassinated said, I could see it be, being the case that the priest came along and said, I know what this is. I know, as soon as I go over there to help that guy, he's going to jump up and attack me. His buddies are going to jump out of the bushes and I'm going to be the victim laying on the side of the road. You've got to wake up awful early in the morning to, to trick me like that. And he said, not me. And then the Levite came along and said, I know what this is. This is a trap. This is dangerous. This, there's something fishy going on here. He said this, the first question the priest asked and the first question the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, who will, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop, what will happen to him? And that reversal from what could happen to me to what could happen to them if I don't stop, if I don't stop, who will? If I don't stop, what could happen? That's the sooner we make that shift, the sooner we become a neighbor. And the Good Samaritan is incredibly generous with his, with his time. He's incredibly generous with his resources. He, he pulls cash out of his own pocket to, to pay for this man's needs. But look how much time he spends. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. We're trying to figure out what those things are that prevent us from being the Good Samaritan. And the first one is that being a neighbor always means taking the dangerous road. 
And the second one is that being a neighbor takes time. Being a neighbor means taking the dangerous road. Being a neighbor takes time. It always takes time. Uh, this incident actually happens on day one. On the second day, we see the, the Good Samaritan is still there. And then he tells the, third, the innkeeper he's going to come back on a third day. Three different days that he's devoted to caring for the stranger. He, he cares for him in terms of his cash. He provides his concern. He shows his concern with his wallet. But he doesn't just stop with cash. He also goes on to the clock. He expresses his concern with, with the time that he expresses. Um, one of my uh, a pastor and professor I know out in Portland, Oregon says, it is nearly impossible to love your neighbor as yourself if we don't give ourselves time and space to actually have a neighbor. And I think one of the greatest arguments we can make against overscheduling ourselves, against scheduling every minute of our day, is that it robs us of the ability to be a neighbor. Because being a neighbor always takes time. Three weeks ago, I was driving down the road in my old car that we affectionately call the dad wagon. It's a rusty old hatchback that we've had for a long time. It's been paid off for a long time, which is my favorite feature about it. Somebody asked me recently, uh, what's, what's wrong with the car? And I said, it might be easier to tell you what's not wrong with the car. The AM radio still works. And uh, my family every year says, Dad, are you finally going to get rid of that car? And I said, well, I just put new tires on. I think, I think we get one more year out of it. And the next year, rolls around and said, Dad, are you finally going to get rid of that car? Well, you know, we just put new windshield wipers on. I think we can get one more year out of this car. And every year for, for a long time, I've been saying, one more year, one more year. Well, three weeks ago, I was driving down a country road uh, in, a, in a sparse part of, our, of, of uh, the southern tier, and I hit a pothole, and all of a sudden I heard the unmistakable sound of my muffler dragging on the street. And uh, first, thought, first thought I had was, I'm so glad my family's not with me, because I'd never hear the end of this. And so I pulled over and hopped out of the car, and I looked down, and sure enough, there is my muffler, still attached to the car, but dragging on the street. And you got to know, I went to seminary because I realized that I, if I had to make a living with doing things with my hands, I was going to starve to death. And I, I, knew, I could tell what was wrong. I just, I honestly didn't know what to do with it. And so I looked at my car, and I was probably there just a couple seconds when it, out of the only house I could see from where this happened, only one building I could see, a house, out comes this guy with a beard about half as big as me, uh, steel-toed boots. Uh, he was wearing so much camouflage, I almost couldn't see him coming. Uh, that's your dad joke for Father's Day. And uh, he had a wire in his hand, and I thought, either he's coming to help me, or I better start running. <laughs> and he, before I knew what was happening, within seconds of this whole thing happening, he was on the, on the ground under my car, hooking my muffler back up and taking that wire to, to tie it back up again so that if it broke loose again from that spot again, the wire would hold it in place. And he said, uh, I wouldn't go too far with it like this, but this will get you where you're going. And I'm just sitting there in awe about how quickly he sprung to action and came to my rescue. And I, I said, thank, thank you so much for doing this. By the way, my name is Steve. And he said, my name is Tom. And he extended his hand to me. Now, this is three weeks ago. I have not shaken anyone's hand since early March. But if Tom wants to shake my hand, I'm going to shake Tom's hand. And so I reached down and shook Tom's hand. And within a few seconds there, we were done. And, uh, and we are getting back on the road. And I said, man, Tom, I really appreciate you doing this for me. I didn't know what I was going to do, who I was going to call. I was too ashamed to call my family. And he said, you're welcome. And watch this. He said, that's what rednecks do. And right there, that was a signal to me. That he and I looked very, I was looking kind of like I am right now, wearing my Crocs brand loafers, and he's wearing these steel-toed boots and camouflage from head to toe, and I trim my beard about every other day. I think he probably hadn't trimmed his beard since the Bush administration. And we're just 
anybody driving by could tell we were not, like, we were not cut from the same cloth. We were two very different people. He could tell as soon as he saw me out there, I was not from his neighborhood. And yet he came across the street anyway. It, it all happened so fast. By the time I got home, my family didn't even realize anything had happened. And so I walked in the door. I said, you guys aren't going to believe this. There's something incredible just happened to me. I think we can get another year out of that car. <laughs> that car, for the record, has been donated to the Salvation Army. God bless the Salvation Army. And uh, much to my family's relief. But I realized the next day, I said, actually, I just lived out the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I was a victim of my own foolishness and pushing the limit on the side of the road. Other cars drove right by. Nobody stopped. And Tom, a person so different from me, who could tell I wasn't from his neighborhood and he wasn't from my neighborhood, walked across the street and made sure I got back on the road. And I never even had to ask him for help. Be like Tom. Be a neighbor. Even if the person isn't from your neighborhood, especially if the person doesn't look like you, even if they never ask you for help, because that's what Christians do. Well, Jesus has wrapped up the parable, but we're not done with the story, because remember, this is a story within a story, and we've got to find out what happens with this expert in the law who has posed this question and who's been trying to trip up Jesus. And so we see Jesus at the end of this say, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to save the Samaritan. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This whole scene begins with this man saying, and who is my neighbor? To whom do I owe an obligation as a neighbor? Help me make a list of the people that I owe an obligation to. And Jesus flips the whole thing around and says, don't think of it that way. Be a neighbor. And he sums this call. He ends the whole exchange with these simple words, Go do that. And we've got to ask the question, who will answer the call? When Cain killed his brother Abel, God called out to Cain and said, Oh, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain said, What am I, my brother's keeper? Cain didn't answer the call. When Joseph's brothers faked his death and sold him into slavery and broke their father's heart, they didn't answer the call. But God called out to Moses through a burning bush and he said, Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. They have been suffering and slavery for centuries and for generations. And I want you to be the answer for their prayers. Lord, Moses, I want you to go and to rescue them from slavery and be the answer to their prayers all these years. Moses, will you go? And Moses answered the call. Esther heard the call through her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai came to Esther and said, your people are being targeted. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth unless someone stands up, unless someone does something about this, unless someone shows love and compassion for them. Esther, who knows that maybe God has raised you up for this very moment and put you into this position for this exact situation. Esther, will you go? And Esther answered the call. And God isn't done calling yet. Jesus heard the call through the, a desperate mother who is desperate for her child. And Jesus answered the call. Jesus heard the call through the centurion who is desperate for the healing of one of his servants. And Jesus answered the call. God called out to William Wilberforce to put an end to abolish the slave trade in England. And he was inspired by many friends, including John Wesley, to stand firm despite all the opposition and to put an end to slavery in England. And William Wilberforce answered the call. 
God called out to Mother Teresa to go to Calcutta to serve those who are the least and the lost, those who are being oppressed and those who are suffering in great, great poverty. And Mother Teresa's life and her legacy shows that Mother Teresa answered the call. God called out to Julie Palmer from right here within Watermark Wesleyan Church to be a part of solving the issue of, of human trafficking here in Western New York. And if you know Julie Palmer, and if you know PATH, people against, human, people against Trafficking Humans here in Western New York, then you know that Julie Palmer answered the call. God called out to Dr. Myron Glick to start Jericho Road Community Health Center here in Western New York, as, and as they say, to provide for the underserved and the marginalized in order to demonstrate the unconditional love of Jesus. Dr. Glick and the team at Jericho Road and a very appropriately named Community Health Center answer the call every day, and God isn't done calling yet. God called out to the, the priest as he went down, and he was worried that it's a dangerous road, and who knows what might happen to me. The Levite came down the Jericho Road, and he said, it's going to take time, and there's a risk in going down this place. And he didn't answer the call. But the Samaritan came along, and he said, if nobody helps, who will help? If I don't stop, who will? And the good Samaritan answered the call. And Jesus calls out to you, and he calls out to all of us to heed the call, to be a neighbor on a dangerous road, to be a neighbor even though it takes time, and it will always take time. Who will listen? Who will heed the call? Who will answer the voice to be a neighbor, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to be a neighbor because that's what Christians do? So there was a study. Forty pastors start out one building. They're interviewed. And then they move over to a second building where they have to give a little talk. And in between, there's a person in need and they just sat back to watch what would happen. More than half of those pastors in training didn't stop. And they were curious. What was it that made some stop but not others? Was there any rhyme or reason to this? Was there anything that they could detect that caused some to stop and not others? And so they looked at age, and the age didn't make a difference. They looked at gender. Gender didn't make a difference. They looked at educational level. That didn't make a difference. They wondered if maybe... What they were getting ready to talk about, if that made any difference, that didn't make a difference. Those who were preparing to talk on the Good Samaritan stepped right over the person in need. They found it was just two words that made all the difference. When they were getting ready to leave that first building and walk over, for half of the group, they looked at the clock and said, well, we're early. You've got about 15 minutes, but why don't you make your way on over, and they'll call you in when they're ready. For the other half, they looked at the clock and said, we're late. You're supposed to be there 15 minutes ago. You better hurry. And those two little words, you're late, made all the difference. 63% of those who were told you have time stopped to provide help. 10% of those who were told you're late kept on stepping. It doesn't take much. And God isn't done calling yet. Answer the call to be a neighbor because that's what Christians do. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to begin slowly to begin worshiping together again. And we thank you for all those people who have been neighbors to us when we've been in need. All the Toms in the world who went out of their way even when there might have been reasons for them to stay back. All those people who have expressed compassion to us. Give us eyes to see the opportunities to be neighbors this week. Give us eyes to see the opportunities to express our love for you by loving our neighbor. I pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord.
Amen.